You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And happy Snake Day! Hey, thanks! <laughs> Welcome to our Snake Month bonus episode. Like last month, we are going to do a bonus episode, and like last month, it's going to be interview style, and this time, the interviewee is David. Hey, that's me! We're going to be talking about David's experience with snakes, and his point of view, and opinions on this group of animals. Very similar format to last month. These questions were pulled from and inspired by questions suggested by our patrons. Thanks, patrons. Yes, thank you very much. This episode is coming out on World Snake Day. July 16th. July 16th. And like last month for Snake Month, we are also making a donation. So this is, as a reminder, still when this episode goes live, we have a Patreon tier that is available just during the summer, and subscriptions we get at that tier contribute to charitable donations towards croc and snake conservation. Uh, crocs are done. June's over. Yes. Get those out of here. Talk about snakes. Snakes. <laughs> uh, this donation for snake conservation will be going to the Harold K. Voris Aquatic Snake Research Conservation Grant. This is a grant by Herpetological Conservation International. And it is focused on funding research and conservation efforts for aquatic snakes. And it has already been used in research efforts for assessing endangered freshwater snakes in the Philippines. Yeah, like last time we thought that this would be thematically appropriate. By the time this episode comes out, our snake episode of the podcast, episode 169, will be out. So you can see that aquatic snake research is very fitting given the content of our episode. Yes, indeed. So if you are interested in participating in that donation, check out our Patreon, look at those that snake croc tier, and join us there, and your donation will go towards this kind of research. And now, we can start asking you some questions. Please do. Talk about snakes. So, starting off like we started off last time, David, what makes snakes your favorite? What about them resonates with you? Well, they're just so good. (laughs) They're just the best. I think that most of what I like about snakes is how unusual they are. Just snakes are very distinctive. They're very unique. And even the stuff about them that's not unique, snakes are doing unique things with them. Snakes are extremely recognizable. Like you see a snake and that's a snake. And there are not very many animals in the world that you're going to mistake for a snake. And the ones that you might, snakes are doing whatever they're doing better than that. Like they, they are a very extreme. They are the best version of what they're doing. Yeah. They're a very particular, recognizable, familiar group of animals, despite being a very strange thing. I've often said that one of the things that I find so charming about snakes is that I really appreciate a group of animals that took a feature that was iconic for the lineage they are part of and got rid of it. Yep. So the you are tetrapods. That is a group of animals. This is the, the land dwelling vertebrates are called tetrapods, which means four feet <laughs> and tetrapods have used their four feet for digging and swimming and climbing and just all sorts of really important stuff. And snakes are an entire group of animals that went, eh, 
We can live without it. That's not a big deal. And then they became one of the most diverse and successful groups in the world. I love that this is a group of animals that got rid of that oh-so-essential part of the anatomy and dig and climb and swim and do basically all the same stuff that all the other animals do. They live all over the world. They come in all different shapes and sizes. They are an extremely successful, diverse group that is also very odd. Yeah. No, I like you saying that they're the best at being the way they are. They are the best there is at what they do. There are many serpentine things, but only (laughs) snakes are always doing it the best. But but the word serpentine is referring to snakes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So as far as this love for snakes goes, where does it come from? Do you have any early experiences or particular moments that caused you to love snakes? I don't think that I had... In the last episode, uh, you recited your uh, birthday cake story. Yep, yep. And I don't ha- I don't think I have a story like that. I don't think I had a particular specific event uh, when I was growing up. But I know I liked snakes as a kid. Mm-hmm. I, was, I wasn't like a hardcore super snake fan, but I liked snakes. I read books about snakes. I remember doing like art projects in art class about snakes. Cool. Like I, I would use snakes as inspiration for artwork that I was doing. I did a, a print project in like ninth grade where we would we would carve the block of I uh, materials, but we would carve the block of rubber, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then that was used to create the print. We would paint on it and print it, and I copied this image of I think it was a rattlesnake out of a book that I had. I sort of redrew it. And then I was carving that out, and I, I do distinctly remember that because there were a lot of scales <laughs> on that image, and that was a lot of carving. <laughs> that was a lot of very meticulous work to create the actual print template for that snake. So I, when I was a kid, I, I just, they were one of the groups of animals. I always liked reptiles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I liked wild animals. I didn't really have a lot of encounters with snakes, certainly not wild snakes. Um, I would see them at zoos and stuff. I would watch documentaries and things about them. I do remember as a kid being very excited about Jeff Corwin. Yeah. And Jeff Corwin, one of his sort of repeated things that he always talked about on his nature shows was that he loved snakes. Yeah. He was a big fan of snakes. And I honestly can't remember how much that was inspiring to me. Or I liked him because he liked snakes. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think I already liked them. And I was like, this is cool. That guy likes snakes. And so I, I, I would sort of immerse myself in snake stuff. I also kind of suspect, thinking back on it, that there was probably at least part of it for me as a kid was a, a little bit of a counterculture thing. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. Of like, this is a group of animals that a lot of people don't like. So I'm going to like them a bunch. Yes, uh, that sounds like a thing I would have done as a child. <laughs> Just slightly contrarian. Just a little bit to be like, you know what? I'm going to like them a little extra mm-hmm. because nobody else is liking them. Yeah, no, that actually makes complete sense. Like, the, just the attention is being drawn to this and you didn't really care that, whether that it was negative attention. She's like, all right, but what? Okay, but what is it about this? <laughs> yeah, so I, w- I was, uh, uh, I wasn't like a huge snake aficionado uh by any means as, as a younger you know person but i really liked snakes i think yeah. I've, I've i don't remember a time where i didn't like snakes nice do you have any favorite snake stories or or moments that you've gotten to ha- experience with them i have so i have interacted with snakes quite a bit mm-hmm. uh so again these are the same questions uh that we asked 
in the episode uh, about where we talked to you about Crocs, and your Crocs experience is fairly limited yes. just by virtue of the fact that they're Crocs. Yeah, they're, they're no, big. They're really only good to be around, like near <laughs> yes. when they're a certain size, and after that, you don't want to be near them. I've encountered snakes quite a bit. Uh, I've seen snakes in the wild. I've gone on a number of trips, uh, field work uh, for for fossil hunting, where there were snakes uh, that we encountered as part of that. I've also been on a number of uh, herping trips, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. actually going out looking for snakes. Uh, you and I have been on a handful of herping trips together yes. that we went on uh, when we were grad students. Yep, yep. Went down to like the South Carolina, places like that. So I've encountered snakes in the wild, uh, usually not in any sort of, you know, I, I was never one for sort of going out and catching snakes in fact i will take this will a great opportunity for me to make a confession <laughs> i'm really bad at catching snakes like, i'm actually i'm very, i'm not good at it i remember having a very a, a particular example of this i was i spent a couple months in china many years ago as part of a research project and one of the other people that was on that program that was that was part of this research grant was a herpetologist mm-hmm. from here in the u.s and we kind of got to know each other a little bit. And he had worked in China previously and he knew uh, another herpetologist there. And one weekend they were going off on a herping trip. They were going to go out looking for reptiles and they invited me to come along. So I got to hop in the car and we drove out. To, we actually went to an old section of the Great Wall. Ooh, cool. So we were looking for herps along, not like the done up nice touristy sections yes. where everything is very pristine and it it's sort of big and majestic like the crumbly old rubble sections cool. where you can still walk along it but it is like this has not been upkept in hundreds of years so we were walking along uh this region and it was a very very hot day so we did not see very many reptiles but one of the two we saw a lizard and we saw a snake uh something like a racer i think it was colubr so similar to racers And they, I remember the two other guys sort of went in to go try to, you know, get a hold of it. And I was like, I will stand over here. And like, you guys are way more experienced at this than I am. Uh, I'll stand here. And it got away from them and came right towards me. And I very hesitantly, like, tried to come up with a plan as it just went right past my legs. Yeah. (laughs) And then the guy, one of the guys in the group made a comment about he was like you don't have a lot of experience with the living ones do you and i was like no no i do not i have always been uh my problem is that i'm too hesitant mm-hmm. mostly because i'm worried i'm gonna hurt the animal yeah like i know me i'm gonna throw my hand out there and accidentally jab it in the eye or something and then i will feel bad and in my hesitation snakes get away from me very easily <laughs> yeah it, it, they they are tricky because they're they're small and they're wiggly and nimble and it feels like you either had the option of grabbing it confidently and risking a bite or mm-hmm. being extremely skilled to grab it without risking a bite. <laughs> and I'm not honestly even all that worried about a bite. Mm-hmm. Like, I, if I'm out grabbing a snake in the wild for some reason, I expect to get bitten. Yep. Like, that's going to happen. That That's why I'm not going to go after venomous snakes because yep. I'm going to get bitten <laughs> by the snake. That's fine. I don't want to hurt the snake. Yeah. That I've always had this. I'm the same way with like bugs. Mm-hmm. I don't like picking up bugs. Part of that is because I'm afraid I'm going to hurt the bug. Yes. And you know I know how easy it would be. Yes. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to accidentally smear you on the wall and then feel terrible. 
So yeah, I'm not I'm not the best <laughs> handling wild snakes. <laughs> uh, I have interacted with uh, uh, snakes in a sort of educational context. Mm-hmm. So I worked at a nature center for a while where we had a California king snake. This was in New York. We had a, a king snake whose name I can't think of off the top of my head right now. But that snake was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, big yellow and white banded so very showy snake people were kids would get really excited to see that snake and i have a pet snake mm-hmm. i've had a pet snake a little rat snake that i've had for about 10 years now uh and so i've gotten that's another thing that you get to do with snakes that you don't get to do with a lot of groups of animals is you can keep them in your home yes so i've had this snake for quite some time so i've gotten you know i i've gotten to handle snakes a bunch um, I have a snake I take care of and feed. I've even gotten to use my snake as an intro snake for some people, which is a really fun thing to get to do. Uh, we would do this at the nature center as well, where when you if if you, people are like people see a snake, you're generally getting one of two reactions. Mm-hmm. That they are either happy about it or not happy about it. <laughs> and I've gotten to use uh, uh, actual live snakes in demonstrations, both my own and uh, those at the nature center a number of times for introducing people to snakes. I have a go-to technique with my, with, with mine where I'll be like, I'll hold the dangerous end and you can hold the tail. Like it might, it's a very calm f- fr- quote unquote friendly. Like yes. it's a very tolerant snake. So it's a great snake for introducing people to snakes. It snakes really are a cool opportunity to do that since it, that phobia is so common. Mm-hmm. So getting to actually introduce them to it is is a, 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 a very special experience. Yeah. So I have actually interacted uh, with snakes quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, not not as much as, you know, some people. I don't go outside <laughs> that much, but I've gotten a, a lot of hands on experience with snakes, which is pretty fun. Well, on the note of experiences you haven't had, are there any that you particularly would like to have any snakes you'd want to meet or things you'd like to get to do with snakes that you haven't yeah uh well i mean i i I guess i wouldn't turn down opportunities to hang out with more snakes in general (laughs) there are a few groups of snakes that it would be fun to interact more with like i've never actually gotten to interact with a big snake yeah probably the biggest snakes i've ever held are like you know six foot snakes like gopher snakes and stuff as sort of cliche as it's as it is to just pick the big thing, it would be super cool to have some sort of interaction with like a big python or a anaconda or something like that. Something that takes more than one person. Yeah, I like to be part of a team <laughs> holding a snake. I also I I haven't had very much experience interacting with or being particularly close to venomous snakes. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a reason for that. I I have seen venomous snakes in captivity. I have seen venomous snakes in the wild. So I have encountered uh, rattlesnakes, copperheads, cottonmouths. I've seen them in the wild, but I don't go near them because, again, I am not a trained person in handling venomous snakes, nor am I a confident person Mm -hmm. in handling a snake and not getting bitten by it. So I have kept my, you know, I keep my distance from venomous snakes, which everybody should do. Oh, yeah. But uh, I'd love to have more interaction because there are groups of snakes that because they are potentially dangerous and difficult to handle, they're harder to get close experience with. And I think that a lot of venomous snakes are extremely cool. 
I'm not going to go pick up a rattlesnake. But if I was with somebody who was like a, a rattlesnake handler or a keeper or somebody, it'd be awesome to get more close up encounters with things like with rattlesnakes or like cobras or mambas are so cool. <laughs> like they're so, I, I love whenever I see mambas in enclosures and reptile houses and stuff. They're such curious mobile snakes and they seem like they would be really interesting to interact with, except for the part where I don't want to actually interact with them. Not quite wanting to that level of risk. Right. Or responsibility. No, that's that's fine. Uh, So if if possible, it would be really cool to get more experience up close uh, with venomous snakes, bigger snakes. And then the experience of going to another country mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. going on a hike looking for a different country's reptiles was very cool. And I, that would be really cool to do uh, on a, you know, anywhere else in the world. Nice. Yeah, maybe I'll, yeah, you know, we'll go go on a trip to, you know, Africa or Australia and go looking for snakes. That, what, what could go wrong? I want to go on that trip. <laughs> let's go. Yeah, let's go on a trip to Australia. <sighs> that would be, that would be awesome. <laughs> Well, speaking of the... the... Wait, I thought of another... I just remembered. I would love to go... This is the thing I actually want... Like, is on my list of I would really like to do this. The snake beds in uh, Manitoba, Mm -hmm. I think, up in Canada. That's a thing I would love to do. Yeah. There are these fissures in the ground up there where red... I think they're red-sided garter snakes will hang out over the winter. Yeah, They will overwinter down there. And they only come out for a few months of the year because they're way up north and it's really cold. <laughs> they're where snakes shouldn't be. That, exactly. <laughs> and so when they come out, this is the Narcisse snake beds. When they emerge in the spring, it's just a carpet of snakes. Yeah. And there's like boardwalks set up in these areas where you can go and see them. That's an experience I would love to have. That sounds awesome. That would be very, very cool. Because that's one of those things that I've seen in documentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but getting to see that in person would be very, very surreal just to, to actually see that many snakes all at once. Yeah. Because you usually don't see snakes. No, exactly. They're very good at not being seen. Well, that that's like they when you go looking for snakes, you have to actually go like looking through the underbrush, right? <laughs> and like keeping an eye out for just the tip or edge of a snake, and then pull the rest of it out. But just to see them covering the ground, I, I want to do that. Yeah. So speaking of the diversity of snakes that you'd like to interact with, is there a favorite? Do you have a favorite species, living or dead? Uh, living. Ah, uh, I. Oh, there's so many snakes. Yes, yeah, this isn't this like is your much, animal yeah, where you, you have got a much like bigger challenge. Twenty five species. <laughs> pick, pick your favorite <laughs> single one. Here in the U.S., I have often, I, I, I often say that a couple, it's probably two of my favorites, maybe my two favorites, are gopher snakes. Mm-hmm. So pituophis, mm-hmm. gopher snakes, bull snakes, pine snakes. That's pituophis. I really like them. They're just very pretty snakes. They're big. They have tiny little heads. I also really like green snakes. Yeah. So here again in the U.S., we have Ophiodries. We have the rough and, and smooth green snakes. Those are so cool. That slender green. I encountered one on one of our herping trips uh, moving through the grass and sort of just swaying side to side like a little branch. Those are very cool snakes. So I think um, among living snakes, if I had to choose favorite species those two i've always really enjoyed the, the handful of times i've gotten to interact with them uh and indeed uh coil mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in our logo the the art that rob made for us basque and coil the gator and the snake who are in the uh sitting at the table 
those are particular species. Yes. We, we asked Rob, actually Rob asked us. Yep. He was like, do you want them to be a particular species? And Basque is an American alligator and coil is a pole, is a pine snake. Yep. Yep. Uh, as far as extinct species, I'm extremely biased. <laughs> that, that, yes, I have a favorite extinct species. Is, the, is there one that you feel a stronger connection just a, a to? A little, you know, it's for something about it just speaks to me. Uh, Zelantophis schuberti is a fossil species of snake, probably very similar to a rat snake, uh, rather small snakes that have been discovered only so far at the gray fossil site. This is a species, genus and species, that were identified and named in a study in 2017 that was published by me and my friend Steve. So that's my favorite snake. Uh, that's that's my cheating answer is, yeah, the snake that I discovered. Which is, that's fair. That's I can understand why that one's got a, a soft spot. Uh, a little snake-shaped yeah. place in my heart. Yep, yep. Uh, well, well it, the, heart, the place in my heart is the shape of seven vertebrae. <laughs> right. <laughs> seven individual three millimeter long vertebrae. <laughs> Which does lead us perfectly in the next set of questions of, let's talk about your research. Sure. Uh, What all did it entail to do that research? So uh, I've done a hand, I've I've done research on snakes a a few different times. Mm -hmm. So the gray fossil site snake, snakes was the most recent of my research projects. I actually got started uh, when I was an undergraduate. So I attended Penn State University uh, for my undergraduate degree, uh, University Park and when I went to Penn State, I knew I wanted to be a paleontologist. That was already something I had decided. And I got to Penn State and I started telling people. I would, you know, talk to the professors and I would talk to the other students. I was like, yes, I am here to be a paleontologist. And I eventually was introduced to Russ Graham, mm-hmm. who was the, the the one vertebrate paleontologist there at the time. And the students introduced me to him. And he said, great, come on to field work with us. And I did. And then the next year I joined, he had a small group of students that would get together and talk about sort of research projects that the museum that they were working on. And I heard about these projects. And one day I went up to Russ and was like, hey, everybody's got cool projects. Can I get a project? (laughs) And he knew when I first got there, he had said, what kind of fossils do you like? And I was like, I like dinosaurs and stuff. And he was like, cool, you're not going to work on that here. Mm -hmm. We don't have any dinosaur people. And I went, that's okay. Other stuff is also cool. So he knew I liked reptiles and I said, I want cool projects. And he said, well, we do that field work out in that cave from South Dakota. And we've got all these snake and salamander fossils that nobody wants to look at. Do you want to look at those? And I went, yes. (laughs) So my undergraduate research project became identifying salamanders and snakes from this particular site in South Dakota. So this site, this was a cave deposit. There was a couple of different cave deposits. So these were uh, pit caves. So the entrance to the cave is a hole in the ground. Yeah. And you go down into the hole and there is a pile of sediment underneath the hole. One of the pits was totally filled in. The other one was still an open cave where we would lower ourselves 40 feet down (laughs) into this cave. And then there was a pile of dirt at the base where we would excavate and dig for fossils that had accumulated there over the years. The fossils we were excavating were late Pleistocene, early Holocene, so like 10 to 15,000 years old, so not not very old at all. Yeah. And my research was looking at vertebrae. Yes. Uh, salamander and snake vertebrae. As we've discussed on the podcast before, when it comes to snakes, usually vertebrae are what paleontologists are using to identify and study fossil snakes because that's most of 
what a snake is. It's the most robust it, piece. It, yeah. It, snakes have more ribs than vertebrae, but ribs are twigs yeah. and not very different from snake to snake species. The vertebrae are boxy and sturdy. There are literally hundreds of them per snake, and they do vary in useful ways between different groups of snakes. So my research was just trying to identify uh, what types of snakes and also salamanders were there. Yeah. So I identified uh, there were a bunch of tiger salamanders, I remember, and then a handful of fossil snake species while I was identifying them to genus. So things like rat snakes, bull snakes, garter snakes, mostly the same kinds of snakes that you find in that region today, uh, identifying those from vertebrae and then trying to get a sense of, yeah, can we tell different proportions of different groups? Mm -hmm. Has that changed over time? Uh, I think we were missing certain things, if I remember right. Like there was, I think, uh, like king snakes, if I remember correctly, was one group that we would have expected to see there, but we didn't. And so a little part of my write-up was that could be just that we haven't found them. Mm -hmm. That could just be a fluke. But if they weren't here, what would that tell us about how snakes have shifted around over time? It could mean that they're more recent arrival to that area. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Uh, And I did very similar research projects. The Gray Fossil Site project was very similar. That started out as another student project. Uh, uh, Steve and I were both uh, graduate students, and we both had projects we wanted to work on. And then we had a class where we had to do research projects for the class. And we didn't want to pick new projects, but we also wanted to work on different stuff. So we just traded projects. Yes, yes. (laughs) So... He, he and I worked together on the snakes, and then we also worked together on his turtle project that he was doing. And that was a very similar thing. We looked at fossil vertebrae from the gray fossil site to identify as best we could. We ended up looking at something like 400 isolated vertebrae of snakes from gray, only colubrids. Yeah, yeah. So we did not... We, we went through and looked at a bunch of different groups, so we were able to identify some viper vertebrae. We identified a hand, a very small number of what seemed like they could be boaed. So boas from a time where they were more widespread here in the U.S. And then all the rest, like 90% of the vertebrae we looked at were colubridae, which is the family that includes most of our familiar snakes, especially here in North America. And then we zoomed in closer to identify those colubrid snakes as best we could. Yeah. So we ended up, most of those vertebrae were broken up or fragmentary, and they were there were enough pieces preserved that we could say you are this family or this family. And then there was a relatively short list of vertebrae that were well-preserved enough that we were able to compare with other fossils, compare with modern snake specimens, and identify them to the genus. Yeah. Uh, so we identified seven different types of snakes in this study. We got We had rat snakes... Pine snakes, garter snakes, water snakes, racers slash coach whips of some kind, possibly an extinct genus called Neonatrix. Okay. Although we were we were un- uncertain about that one. And then seven of the vertebrae had a particular mixture of features that we had could not find in any other known living or fossil snake. And those vertebrae ended up becoming the new genus and species. That's Xelanthophus schuberti. Yeah, very cool. Snakes are uh, uh, differ from uh, last month's group in that you can have lots and lots of pieces very often mm-hmm. because they are they are often numerous in the environment. 
And have many little bones. <laughs> yes. So these are, when we're looking at snake fossils, whereas with, so we have gators at gray, mm-hmm. and we have a number of examples of those where we have, you know, half of the skeleton yeah, or something. like an actual decent percentage. Uh, with the snake, it is almost entirely one piece at a time. Like, we don't have, like, articulated, partially complete snake skeletons. Part of that's because of the way we process the mm-hmm. sediment can, tends to jumble up the bones a little bit. But it means that for researching, we are looking at just every single bone as its own specimen. Yeah, that that is one of the most exciting experiences I ever had at Gray was finding a small section of snake verts yep. uh, that then they gave me the, the clay sculpting tool, like the pottery tool to then go. And that was also the most nerve wracking because I'd keep hitting ribs yep. and just hear because <laughs> they are so small, They're very small. I think that's that might still be the only at all articulated mm-hmm. specimen of fossil snake at Gray. I know we've got a handful of examples of fused vertebrae. Oh, that's cool. Where the part of the spinal column got damaged, mm-hmm. and then when it healed, the the vertebrae got stuck together. Yes, by the healing bone, then got fossilized and just remained fused. Yeah, so we've got a, a hand, at least a couple of examples of where it's two or three vertebrae that are. A unit now from a snake that had an accident. From a snake that had a little bit of a, of a little bit of a hard time. <laughs> uh, I also did very uh, similar research on fossils from China. Mm-hmm. So I, this is something I worked on during that trip to China. I was part of a couple of research projects describing snake and lizard fossils from some late ice age caves in South China. And the the, the publication that came out of that about snakes was one particular actually like whole snake skeleton preserved oh, wow. in this slab of rock that was pulled out of Renzidong cave, uh, which is one of a number of caves down there in South China. And that study was another one where we, we did not actually get to identify it very clearly, even though it was extremely well preserved in terms of like the vertebral column. And part of that came down to just that modern snakes in that region and fossil snakes in that region aren't known as well as in North America. Yeah. So it's harder to compare them with other examples and get a definitive identification. That's actually a really good lead in to uh, another question of how does our knowledge or, or use of modern snakes for understanding fossil snakes, you know, what is the dynamic there? Yeah, we use, so as with anything, we study modern animals to understand the anatomy and the potential behavior of their fossil counterparts. It absolutely means that if we have a part of the world or a group of that group of animals that we don't understand very well today, we're not going to understand them very well in the fossil record. Yeah. So Asian snakes, for example, are just not as well studied as North American snakes. And the Asian fossil record of snakes is not as well understood so we have less comparison to go off of. I often say about the new species that Steve and I named, Zelantophus, that's a new genus and species because we did not find that combination of traits in any other known snake living or extinct. It is totally possible that there is a living snake today mm-hmm. that is very similar that we just haven't done detailed anatomical studies of yes i i often say i would not be surprised if at some point in the future someone dissects a lesser understood group of snakes from southeast asia 
where we have a lot of connections with Gray Fossil Sade, and looks at it and goes, oh, this is the snake you guys found. Yep. This is the one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and as you mentioned, when we compare crocs and snakes, crocs has a small list of species that you can study very, very heavily. Yes. You're dealing with so many more. 3,000 or so living species. So it makes complete sense that there are going to be branches or areas that just not as much study has happened, even if you had as many snakes researchers as you could possibly want. Right. You're just dealing with a ton. There's also a lot of species of this group that are hard to find. Yeah. But that's another thing. If you study crocs or if you study elephants or something, it's not that you just go out and find them. It takes effort and it takes time and there are challenges. But when you're near one, you'll see it. Yeah. <laughs> it's there it is. It's five feet long. A lot of snakes are extremely cryptic and, it, and they can be very small and they can live their entire lives in the leaf litter, which can make it harder to to study them. Yeah. If you're if the if the snake that would end up find you know, recategorizing yours is a little six inch long snake that has a small range in mm-hmm. Asia. It, it might be under someone's porch, but just right. no one's ever <laughs> ever noted to actually come and research it as something uh, new to identify. On the note of using modern snakes to study fossil snakes, uh, we definitely, there's a lot of ways we do that. A couple of examples that come to mind. One is venom. Yeah. Uh, this is probably the most studied feature of modern snakes. It, they get a ton of research attention looking into diversity of venoms and evolution of venom and the chemical composition of venom they're kind of the hallmark group for when we think of venomous animal yeah that's very often the group you go to well because on uh, on a list of venomous animals snakes are actually kind one of the easier ones to get a hold of and work with Mm -hmm. despite being a little difficult to get a hold of and work with (laughs) in comparison to so many other animals so we do a lot of research on modern snakes to look at anatomy that we can use to interpret fossil snakes. We look at modern snakes, venom to interpret when venom might have evolved in the past. Uh, one other particular example of using modern snakes to understand fossil snakes that comes to mind. This was actually one of the first ever bits of research about snakes that I saw presented. This was a presentation at a conference back in 2008, I think. And this is research that has been done a couple of times is using the shape of snake vertebrae to interpret where in the habitat they lived. Right, right. This was a study that looked at modern snakes and compared that we have some snakes that swim and we have snakes that climb and we have snakes that burrow and then statistically compared the shape of their vertebrae to see are there clear patterns here and if so, can we use that on fossil snakes? Mm-hmm. Can we go, yes, this snake vertebra of this extinct species fits the shape profile we expect from a snake that swims or a snake that spends most of its time underground. Uh, and that's of, of a certain degree of use. It's not a perfect one-to-one, but it's a very cool example of not only using modern snakes to look for patterns and then compare with fossils, but also of using modern snakes to try to help us overcome the limitations of the fossil record. <laughs> like It would be way easier to do this with skulls, but we don't often get skulls. Yeah. So let's do it with vertebrae. Well, it's also cool that there's the potential to still get that information when they have removed limbs, which is what we would typically use to try to figure out what environment and how you're moving through your environment. Yeah. That now it's shifted to the way you are bending and moving your body. 
Yeah. Also, apparently, tail shape and length oh. uh, seems to correlate in so, to some degree with whether they're climbing. I think, if I remember right, climbing snakes tend to have longer tails, yeah. things like that. No, that, like, that's, I wouldn't have thought about that, but I can definitely think of a handful of snakes off the top of my head that do fit that pattern. Interesting. Yeah. That's very cool. So when it comes to studying snakes, uh, modern or extinct, are there any big questions that people are looking to, or big mysteries, you know, are there unknowns that we're still trying to figure out with this uh, unusual group? I think the big unknowns when it comes to snakes, the the biggest category all has to do with their evolutionary history. Yeah. And just kind of where snakes came from and where the different groups came from and how they fit together. We've talked about this on the podcast before, that the big open question about snakes is how did snakes first evolve yes because we have a very extensive if bit and pieces fossil record of snakes from more recently but the early snake fossil record is very very sparse so there are a lot of open questions about what were the conditions that favored snakes losing their limbs in the first place were were they the same sorts of conditions that we see limbless other limbless groups of lizards evolving their long limbless shape or was it something different for snakes these are questions that we don't have a clear answer to yet because we don't have those early snake fossils we don't there's actually quite a bit we don't understand yet about snake leg evolution Mm -hmm. like how far into their evolutionary history did they retain legs yeah we have fossils back to the jurassic period that are bits and pieces that look like snake. And then we have snakes from throughout the Cretaceous period that have legs, hind legs. Is that something that only certain groups still had? Were they using those legs in a particular way? Did snakes spend the first hundred million years or so of their evolutionary history still having legs (laughs) before they lost them? Was that, are those just a particular odd lineages of snakes how did the vestiges that we see today in boas and pythons like i i as far as i know the little bits of bone that are in the vestigial limbs kind of of modern boas and pythons we we don't fully understand which bones of the leg those are yep yeah they're so different they're so sort of reduced that it's hard to say oh that one's the femur and that one's this and that one's that yeah we could be looking at pieces of the leg or pieces of a foot or mm-hmm. like we don't know which element got left behind there's also a lot of open questions about how different groups of snakes relate to each other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what's the order of which groups branched off when and which groups of lizards they're closest related to this is a question that has gone back and forth uh based on different evidences over time where exactly do snakes fit on the lizard family tree? Yep. And then where do the different groups of snakes fit on the snake family tree? Part of this is because they're so diverse and they're so derived, very specialized body plans, that it becomes a little hard to compare them conveniently with other groups of closer related animals. So we end up with all these open questions of, We have an understanding of the evolutionary relationships of snakes, but a lot of the pieces keep shuffling and shifting a little bit as we're trying to sort out this evolutionary history. Yeah, well, and the relations, you know, is something that, like, looking from the outside in, I would expect. 
But the fact that there's so much mystery around their leglessness mm-hmm. feels kind of like the mystery behind like the evolution of bat and pterosaur flight. Right. It's like, this is the thing you're known for. And we we actually have a lot more questions here than one might suspect. Yeah. And not only is it the thing you're known for, we have other groups that we... You're not the only ones that did this. Yes, yes. We have other groups to use as great comparisons. There are tons of groups of lizards that have lost their legs. Snakes are the ones that hit it big. And we ha- we we really would like to know, awesome, how'd you do that? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it about the evolution of snakes compared to legless geckos and glass lizards and skinks and all those other lizard groups that lost their legs? What is it that allowed snakes to be the ones that have 3,000 living species that are all over the world? What did you do that was different that allowed you to become so different we gave you your own name? Yes. That when we tell people you're lizards, they don't believe us because you're such a distinct thing. And we don't know because you did not leave behind a very cohesive fossil record of that process. Yeah, it it really is such an intriguing part of them because not only are, are you the only long skinny animal that's done this but also it seems almost counterintuitive that a long skinny animal did do as much as you did like took over the world as well as you have there are there are tons of other groups of animals that have a similar shape but nowhere near as diverse and widespread as yes which would lead you to think well because you're obviously you're highly specialized Mm -hmm. obviously that body shape if we didn't have snakes it would be very easy for us to say obviously this body shape is only good for certain very particular lifestyles. Yeah, how could getting rid of your legs do anything but limit your options? Right, you turn you you made yourself into a long noodle, mm-hmm. a little spaghetti noodle, and not not like a like a cooked spaghetti or <laughs> all floppy. <laughs> and yet you took that and then went and became one of the most successful groups of animals on the planet. Yeah, that that's a big question of what did you do differently that allowed you to accomplish that. Well, coming off of the note of them being so globally successful, nowadays, though, we obviously are looking at them from a conservation standpoint. Thus why we have World Snake Day. Yes. So bringing, raising awareness and, and talking about the issues facing snakes. So what what are some of the conservation issues that we see related to snakes and, and putting them in danger today? Snakes? Snakes are in the interesting position of because they are so widespread, because snakes are found... Uh, almost every habitat in almost every part of the world, the issues that snakes face in terms of conservation are most of them. Yes. So (laughs) any habitat that is in danger for one reason or another, there's probably snakes there and they are also in danger. Mm -hmm. So there are tons of snake species that are in danger because of habitat loss, because of urbanization, right? People moving into natural environments and turning them into farmland or cities or whatnot. Pollution is an issue for snakes. All those sorts of habitat destruction and habitat disruption that so commonly uh, is a problem for other groups of animals. Snakes also suffer... uh, Here in North America, there has been a recent bout of disease for snakes yeah snake fungal disease is a relatively recently if not originating spreading disease that infects the skin of snakes that has been reported more and more widespread across the u.s which is causing problems for some populations of snakes because it it can eventually kill them and it gives them all sorts of issues so there are diseases 
the the like that one that snakes are facing at a similar time that we see widespread fungal disease causing big problems for bats and yeah. frogs in ways that make us wonder if how much of this disease spreading is because you are vulnerable because your environment's being messed with. Yep. Like is are are these connected? Is it not a coincidence that these diseases are spreading while also you're dealing with all these other environmental issues? Or have we shifted things in a way that are promoting these fungus, you know, making it easier for them to grow or spread? Right, right. And then, of course, snakes also uh, face direct persecution. Absolutely. Uh, more than nearly any other animal on the planet, snakes are, to this day, there, there's a lot of examples of animals in the past being targeted this way, right? Like, Bison were almost eradicated from North America. Passenger pigeons were eradicated from North America. Thylacines were eradicated from Australia because people said, hey, kill a bunch of those. Yeah, we don't like it. And then they did. And then they ran out of those to kill. And that so often we think of that as a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. It's like, yes, that's very sad. But that was in the past. And like, well, thylacines and passenger pigeons went extinct at the beginning of the 1900s. That was not all that long ago. Snakes are a group that still to this day suffers fairly high levels of very widespread persecution. Yes. Like rattlesnake roundups are a thing that still exists where people will actively get together and go out into the world, out into the, the, the woods, out into the wild. With the goal of killing as many native wild snakes as they can find. Yeah, and like as a community, like large right, like let's, groups let's of Let's hold hands and go out yes. and do it. <laughs> it's not just a handful of It's like the town gathers right. and then goes out in mass. So there are places, like I grew up on Long Island in New York. And as far as I know, and I, I actually, this is a piece of information from way in my memory. So there, I could be mistaken about this, but I believe timber rattlesnakes lived on Long Island up until the early 1900s or so, mm -hmm. and were eventually eradicated by people. Yeah. Uh, so there's habitat loss for sure. There are diseases spreading across snakes in some places like here in North America. And then, yeah, people just kill snakes. That That is a thing similar to crocs, similar to uh, sharks yeah. and a lot of other often malign species. Uh, snakes suffer direct persecution Absolutely. as a conservation threat. No, that that is that is probably one of the most famous things about our interactions with snakes. Yeah, they're also hunted for like stuff. Yeah, so they're hunted for skins and and for in some places like medicinal applications. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they they can also be hunted for things like that. Yeah, and so talking about our persecution of snakes, you know, we talked about what are some of the misinterpretations with crocs. What are some of the biggest ones that you've come across when it comes to snakes of people misunderstanding or haven't been given misinformation? Yeah, so misinformation about snakes do indeed suffer from quite a lot of misinformation and misrepresentation. A lot of it is the kind of stuff you expect with potentially dangerous animals, that misinformation that leads people to think snakes are more dangerous than they actually are. Yes. It is extremely common for people to have gotten the idea from somewhere that snakes are out to get you. Yeah. That the snakes are, snakes want to bite a person. That they're malicious, like we tend, we are often portray many predators as. Yes. That they're lying in wait. It's like, oh, you got to watch out. They're lying in wait and they'll bite you. 
also that snake a very popular misconception is that they'll chase people Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. they will actually come after you there's also just a because snakes garner so much attention there's a ton of misinformation the very specific bits of like common knowledge or folklore or whatever about how to deal with snakes or how to identify different groups of snakes like how to identify a venomous versus a non-venomous snake yep yeah there are dozens of commonly cited practices out there for here's how you can tell if a snake is venomous most of them are false (laughs) and most of them because they're false can lead to people Either misinterpreting a snake as being harmless, like thinking it's harmless because they have the wrong idea about what a venomous snake looks like, which can put a person in harm's way Mm -hmm. and certainly can put the snake in harm's way. But probably much more commonly, it leads people to see harmless snakes, think they're venomous, and then kill the snake. Yep. So there's tons of misrepresentation about what snakes actually do, how they behave, most of it portraying snakes as extremely dangerous and malicious or evil and something for people to be afraid of. Yeah, no, you mentioning the misidentification. I'm pretty sure basically every news article, because I looked it up when we were uh, working with our milk snake back at the aquarium, and every article I found of someone being bitten by a coral snake was someone who picked it up thinking it was a king or milk snake Mm -hmm. and picked up a coral snake, got bitten and went to the hospital because they used the faulty or just didn't fully understand or just misidentified and put themselves in danger with that faulty information. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of the common stuff for things like coral snakes are a great example because one of the things people often say is the slit pupils. Mm Mm-hmm. You can tell it's venomous if it has slit pupils, which completely ignores the fact that if you're that close, you're too close. Yes, absolutely. You don't get that close. Coral snakes are a very venomous snake that do not have slit pupils. Coral snakes are also red, black, and yellow. There is a rhyme about black and red, yellow snakes, which is a very famous rhyme that herpetologists will tell you, don't use that rhyme. Nope. Because that, that rhyme works in very specific circumstances. But if you're not in those circumstances... You don't know what kind of snake you're identifying, but it's difficult and it's it's time consuming and it's involved to do what you actually would need to do, which is to just learn how to identify the specific species of venomous snakes that live in your area. Yes. So people really gravitate towards these quick, easy, here's the answer, which is, again, potentially dangerous for people, potentially dangerous for snakes, especially since there's a ton of snakes who defend themselves by impersonating venomous snakes. Yep. So, yeah, if you're looking at the shape of the head, well, that's a snake that flattens its head so that you'll think it's a viper and not bother it. Because evolution also noticed that trend. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because birds also picked up on the shape of a viper head. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's it's what is especially I feel tricky for a lot of this misinformation perpetuates itself because in your specific community those tips and tricks might work Mm -hmm. you know in this area of the southern u.s or this area of your country those quick tips might work because the only snakes in that area follow those rules but because of the internet and television 
now those rules have gotten perpetuated across the globe. Mm-hmm. And so you you could have people visiting another country and be like, no, no, I know the eye rule. It's like, all right, but you're in a country where most of the venomous snakes actually are going to have round pupils. Right. Also, you live in a world where people will just have captive snakes that, you know, might be out. Yes, exactly. Or something like that. And so it's it's tricky to try to convince someone that these rules are not reliable if in their personal experience in their hometown, mm-hmm. they have been to say, I understand, but you really should preface where you're talking about every time you say it. <laughs> and I think that that gets at one of the things that is so difficult about the way snakes are represented is not only is there a lot of inf- misinformation, but there's a lot of extremely popular ingrained misinformation. Yes. Because snakes are everywhere. Almost every culture on the planet interacts with snakes. And so you have these bits of old wisdom or these stories that, you know, grandpappy told me about interacting with snakes that makes those bits of often misleading information very set, very difficult to overcome. Cultural. The other thing about snakes, uh, talking about the way that they're misrepresented and, and sort of misconceptions and and misperceptions that people end up with. One of the things that always stands out to me about snakes is more so than almost any other group of animals on the planet, fear and hatred of snakes is not only encouraged and perpetuated by misinformation, fear and hatred of snakes is normalized in a way that is almost unique to snakes, Mm -hmm. that it isn't just... These are potentially dangerous animals and some people might have bad experiences and you might be afraid of them. In most, particularly here, you know, in the U.S., for example, it is often considered the normal and right thing to do. Like, like if you talk to a person who is afraid of dogs or is afraid of birds and they explain it, in my experience, people with fears like that often have this sort of this this level of self-awareness of like, I need to explain this to somebody because this might be something they haven't heard of before. It might seem a little weird to them. This is my phobia and this isn't sort of the expectation. But when people talk about being afraid of snakes, they say it like it's the most natural thing in the world. When people say, yeah, if I see a snake in my yard, I will kill it. I've been in tons of conversations where a person will say, yep, if I see a snake, I kill it. And I know that if I object to that, I'll be the weird one in this conversation. Yep. Like, I'm going to get stares for saying, no, you should not just wantonly kill whatever animal that is vaguely snake-shaped that you see in your yard. It would be ridiculous if you said this about tons of other groups of animals. If I was like, the only good butterfly is a dead butterfly. Yes. That'd be super bizarre. Mm-hmm. But with snakes, it it has gotten to the point in the way that people talk about snakes, the cultural representations of snakes... That being afraid of snakes and hating snakes is not only a common thing to do, but many people perceive it as the right thing to feel about snakes. They are, they've been grouped into a similar category with rats and mosquitoes and cockroaches as these pest or, or dangerous animals that we, our society would be better without. Right. And they are often just viewed that, that, like you said, that is seen as the, just cultured way to be with them. Yeah. Yeah. Which is how you get stuff like rattlesnake roundups where you have a whole town of people. Not, and not only like they got together for lunch one day, it's like 
This is a tradition. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a holiday. <laughs> this is a holiday. Like, it is a holiday. Everyone in town gets together and we go out and we kill as much of the native wildlife as we can. That fits this particular description. That is, it. it is a almost pathological relationship mm-hmm. that humans have built up with this group of animals. And it ties into those misconceptions that a lot of them aren't just this animal is very dangerous. This animal is sneaky or might be coming after you. The misconception, a lot of the common misconceptions about snakes portray them as evil. Yes. Because that perpetuates that fear and hatred, this, this sensation that snakes deserve that. Yeah. That they should be feared. They are deserving of this hatred that people have for them. I have had conversations where I'll try to sort of explain to somebody, like, you don't need to be afraid of snakes, or snakes are totally fine, and they're mostly harmless. And people look at you like you're nuts. Yeah. Okay. What are you even talking about? Mm -hmm. They're snakes. And that that is a level of sort of built-in animosity that you just, you do not get with almost any other group of animals. Yeah, it's like if you were trying to defend having sewer water in, in the drinking reservoir. <laughs> like, they, for them, it just sounds like you're defending a blatantly unbeneficial and unhealthy thing. Mm-hmm. And because they've been raised since they were children by people who were raised since they were children. Sure, sure. Like and it's they're, just... they're seeing snakes on TV mm-hmm. and in books where they're always the bad guys and they're always evil and... Everyone's got a story about, you know, being chased by a snake or something. Well, it makes it's often made me wonder because phobia of snakes is one of the you know top ranking ones, along with like spiders and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I've often wondered how much of that is the cause for our societal treatment of snakes and how much is the result of our society's view on snakes. Yeah. It's in this. This is actually one of the reasons why this question of. Are we born afraid of snakes? Yep. Uh, it comes up so com- so often, and I am always extremely cautious when discussing that, partially because, number one, the science is not definitive on that we are born afraid of snakes. In fact, I, from what I have read of the science, I do not think that it makes sense to infer that we are born with a fear of snakes. We very clearly have a relationship with snakes. Mm-hmm. We are very good at spotting snakes. We have a built-in reaction to snakes. Uh, perhaps the way that you might have a built-in reaction to, like, fire or something. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, that. watch out. This could be a dangerous thing. Well, it's kind of like babies have a response to falling. Like, if you mm-hmm. act like you're going to drop a baby, they respond but that's not the same as acrophobia and a phobia of heights. Right. Those are two different uh, it's, mental it's responses. A wariness and a caution that may may very well make it easier for us to develop a fear of snakes. Yes. And I think that that is almost certainly true, that we do have a built-in relationship with snakes that is easy to exploit. Yeah, that might make it easier for a negative experience or, or uh, uh, upbringing to trigger Mm -hmm. full-blown fear although i also would would wonder if that same sort of built-in relationship doesn't also contribute to snakes being so widely revered and respected and and featured in mythology and in in sort of a benevolent and and sometimes even worshipful way but the other reason that i'm very cautious about that topic in addition to the science being well no the science does not just say that 
but also because if people think that we're born afraid of snakes, that feeds back into that justification. Mm -hmm. It is extremely satisfying for people to think we are born with this fear because then it's a natural way to be. It's a natural thing to do. I'm going to go out and kill all the rattlesnakes. Yeah, I'm just being human. So that there that that kind of underlies all the major issues with com- common cultural popular representation of snakes is this just sort of built-in hatred and violence that revulsion. Yes. Yeah. Which our final questions feels like a much more daunting one after all of that. Yeah. When we're trying to promote conservation for a group of animals, the, one of the key ways of Doing that is getting people to care, getting them to be interested, to be invested in the well-being and outcome for that species or that group. How do we try to overcome all of what we just listed to get people to actually want snakes to keep being around and to keep them in their uh, environments and and societies? I think that uh, it's doable. It has been dude. Uh, There's precedent for this. Uh, Part of it, I, I often find that a big part of it is taking proper advantage of that fascination. Mm-hmm. Like people are fascinated by snakes. Even people who don't like snakes. Like when you're, when you have a snake at a show or if you're at a reptile house or something where the snakes are, that's where the people are. Mm-hmm. And often they're staring at it and talking about how they don't like snakes while they watch the snake. While like, fixated. While fixated on it. Uh, you and I have both done animal shows where we have snakes if you take a snake out of a box, you have the attention of every person in that room. Yes. Like people are are keyed in to snakes. And I think that a lot of the false perceptions of snakes come from taking advantage of that in a negative way. Yeah. But it is totally feasible to take advantage of that in a positive way to to deliver positive messages with snakes. Like, here's a snake. I got your attention. But in <laughs> fact, this snake's name is Charlie and he's very friendly giving people exposure to these animals and allowing them to associate that reaction that they have with fascination and appreciation is such a powerful tool, especially with snakes, because not only are these animals people could very well be interacting with in their day to day, but it's so much easier to do this with snakes than with most other animals. Yeah. Like we talked about with Crocs last time. Mm Mm-hmm. Most of the time, if you're doing an animal show, you maybe have one small gator. Yep. Like that's, that might be all you can actually manage. You can have a whole room full of snakes. Oh yeah. I used to do animal encounters with three different snakes in one, in the same presentation, same presentation. And I, I was able to move all those animals by myself. (laughs) You could hold them all at the same time if you wanted to. You shouldn't. That would be inappropriate handling. Yes. But, but you could, that, that would be physically feasible. And this is why I think, you know, last year we talked with Hiral about Save the Snakes and heard about all the ways that that organization that spends tons of time just bringing snakes to classrooms and bringing snakes to people and exposing them. You know, people build up this idea in their heads so much about snakes. And it's very much the same way that when you're worried about something, right, you build it, you build it up in your head and then you go experience it and it's nothing like what was in your head. Yes. I've talked to people. I have a, a, a friend, uh, a friend's mom many years ago moved to Arizona and was very concerned about running into rattlesnakes. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to run into a rattlesnake. What do I do? What do I do? And 
uh, talk to me about it. And I said, you just walk away. Mm-hmm. They're not going to do anything. If you see one, clock it, go the other direction. And she did not believe me. Yes. She was like, I, I could tell she was like, oh. Okay. But it, 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 once again, it feels like if you, someone was like, I have this open wound, what should I do? And it's like, just leave it alone. Yeah, just well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. That's how it feels of like, yeah. surely this is the wrong advice. Right. That sounds way too nonchalant to be correct. And then a few weeks later, after uh, she had moved, I heard from our friend that she had encountered a rattlesnake, walked away, saw that it didn't follow her. And then immediately felt more comfortable about snakes. And I think giving people the opportunity to have those real life experiences in very sort of enclosed, controlled and safe environments is extremely powerful. Well, it demystifies Mm because so many people who are scared of snakes may not have even had that many encounters or any. Like I've known people who are like, I've never run into a snake in person, but I know if I did, I'd freak out. Right. Because they have that fear even without a negative experience. Or maybe the only experience you ever had was the one snake that you noticed. Yes. Because they're everywhere. But the one you, the the only times you've ever noticed them are when you got too close Mm -hmm. and it struck out at you defensively or something. So the only time you've ever seen a snake is when it was being defensive and therefore scary to you. Absolutely. Another thing that has actually, so, so one of the, phrasings of this question in uh, from our patrons was asking about uh, examples. Yes. Are there actually examples of success stories? And there are with snakes. There are examples of conservation success stories that relied on, you know, scientists, captive, capture, release, breeding programs, things like that. But I went digging around a little bit. I went looking online. To, have there been cases where like, because I, I know of examples with like, the mountain lions in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and like sharks. Yeah. Uh, there's been tons of these examples where like the local community will get excited and they'll like name the animals. And it's like, yeah, this is that's that's, you know, Phyllis. And that's our favorite one or whatever. Give them Twitter pages. And yeah. Facebook pages. Uh, and that has that kind of thing has sort of been done. Uh, one example that I found was the case of the Antiguan racer which is a snake species that is found on the island uh, in the, in the, the, I think this is a twin country of Antigua Barbados. Right, 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 right. That this is a group of snakes that became extremely rare, uh, very much uh, in danger of going extinct and then were brought back. And now there's tons more and now their population is doing much better. And part of how they did this was by getting the community involved, uh, getting volunteers and one of the ways they did it was by instilling a sense of local pride. Yeah. That this snake became a local favorite. Mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is a snake that is only found in our country. This part of the world, this is it. And that's something special to us. They put the the story of this snake conservation in the school curriculum. Oh, that's like cool. Kids were learning, you know how like in your school curriculum, you might learn, you learn about local stuff where it's yes. like, oh, this, this archaeological site is nearby or whatever. Kids in school and teachers who were teaching them were learning the story of the snake. And so it became a culturally important feature. It became something that everybody could be proud of because it was theirs. Uh, so not only is that a great approach because it is taking advantage of getting information in early education. Yes. Also putting that information in the hands of teachers, which is extremely valuable. 
but also you are hijacking that very human sense of local pride mm-hmm. <laughs> that like I love my state, my country, my my hometown, whatever. If you can associate this animal with that feeling, half the work is done for you. People already have that 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 sense to them. It's kind of like what we were talking about in the last episode with the Florida Gators. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah, you love Gators because you love sports so much. Awesome. We we're just gonna we're gonna hijack that feeling of yours. Yeah, you don't want your mascot going extinct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so it can be done. It, it, mm-hmm. This this kind of thing has been done. Well, and and snakes have the the kind of dual sided scenario. Of there's tons of species, which means there's going to be a lot more examples of endemic. You know only found in this area. Yeah. This species has a small range. And so when we were talking about the threats, I had that thought of there's probably going to be more instances where single species are threatened closer to extinction than you would find in other groups that you think of just because there's probably a bunch more examples of this species only has this small range. Right. So if something happens to this forest, that species might be in trouble. But on the flip side, that means you're going to have a lot more examples of these. Of like, listen, this snake here... This is your snake. No one else has this snake. Mm-hmm. If you want to keep it that way, if you want to keep having this unique snake, you need to save it. You need to protect it. Yeah. And then having educators who bring a little snake to a classroom, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, hey, this is our snake. This is the snake that is special to us. This this is an Antiguan snake. Yes. Just like you are an Antiguan person. Like, yes. That is, this is a neighbor. And getting that sort of sense of, can you get people personally invested? And one of the best ways to get them invested is to take a thing they're already invested in. Mm-hmm. Whether it, it's, it's one of the reasons why I often see uh, sort of campaigns to make snakes more palatable for people. One of the things I very commonly see is people say, well, look at rat snakes and say rat snakes are a farmer's best friend. Yes. because And the logic is, well, because they eat mice and rodents. King snakes uh, are often cited this way because they eat venomous snakes, yep. which is a way of sort of trying to get that like, hey, are you a farmer? These guys are on your side. Yeah. Are you, are you, do you identify with being a farmer? Here's a piece of that for you. This is that this is a, a group that you should, you should be appreciating. Yeah. Finding those parts of people's identity that they get invested in and then using that to draw connections to these groups of animals works even for snakes yes it does it works for sharks mm-hmm. we've seen that uh done with sharks it works for crocs right crocs get names even the most maligned and feared of animals <laughs> undeserving though it is you can you know get find that part of people's emotions where they can make a connection to something like that well and talking about the connection you know you mentioning earlier about even when you're afraid you're still usually will fit you know be captured when one is nearby. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of the things that both interest and makes people uncomfortable are often the same things of like mm-hmm. these animals. Cause what I hear listed all the time is they move weird. I don't like the fact that they don't have legs. Yeah. The way they slither is unnerving. Yeah, the tongue, the tongue is weird. They don't blink. Yep. But then on the flip side, all of those are fascinating. Yes. When you're willing to look at it from a, with a bit of curiosity. Yeah. Why don't they blink? Why don't they blink? Let's talk about it. How do they get around without legs? And so those, those often the two groups are focusing on many of the same details. Yes. So if you can just draw that connection and flip the switch a little bit of, 
I hear what you're saying. It's real weird they don't have legs. But did you know that they are related to groups like lizards who have, you know, they came from a group that had legs. Yeah. Let's talk about why don't they have legs? And not only is that turning the fear into fascination, right? It's, it's, uh, this is uh, an example from my real life. It is replacing the word beware with behold. Yes, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. But it also is demystifying. Yes. It's, hey, they don't blink. Here's why they don't blink. Yeah. It's actually a fairly it's simple... A, it's yeah. a scale. They yep. just have a scale. They just... No eyelids. Big scale. Yep, there that's you go. It. Like frogs don't blink. Well, like they kind of blink. Some yeah. kind of blink. Like geckos don't <laughs> yes. blink. Right? There is a bunch of cute animals that don't blink. But now you are also explaining it. Mm-hmm. Here's Here's what happens behind that. And this is really sort of a very core principle in science communication and, and in how we communicate with people. So often, miscommunication, misunderstandings of science don't have to do with the actual science. Yes. It's not actually about the things about the snakes. It's about how people feel about them, and yeah. it's about the things people associate with snakes. That's where we have to make change. Uh, you're a person who fundamentally thinks snakes are a terrible thing that was put on this earth to harm people isn't going to care about the science of defensive postures and you know, why the rattle rattles. You have to get in deeper than that. You have to go, you have to talk to them on the level of the, what they're actually feeling, what is actually driving their perspective on it. No. And that, that is uh, snakes are talking to someone about their fear of snakes or who doesn't like snakes really is a lesson in psychom. Yeah. you, you're going to have to tackle a lot of the toughest aspects of Psycom if you're going to want to try to bridge that gap because the snakes have such a reputation mm. in so many cultures. And that and, and sort of, you know, tying it all together. That's why so much of what we talk about during Snake Month and so much of what gets talked about during World Snake Day and so many snake conservation efforts are focused on outreach and awareness yes. and public education because that is really the core thing is that snakes are awesome mm-hmm. and they're super cool and they're cute and they're fascinating <laughs> and they're fun and they're important and they're crucial to ecosystems. We just have to show that to people. Yes. And if we can get people connected to them, we can establish a much better relationship. Also, we talk about snakes as they're great. <laughs> yep. And I think that'll wrap up this this interview with our, our local snake enthusiast, David I Moscato. I would like to suggest that we talk about snakes for another three or four hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to turn the mic off for that. <laughs> but <laughs> Thank you to our patrons who yeah. suggested questions that we used to compile this list for the interview. Thank you to everybody who has already joined the Snakes and Crocs tier on Patreon. If you haven't, please consider doing so. This episode comes out mid-July, which means that the Discord channel for Snake Stuff is still up. The Patreon tier is still up. We recently released our episode about snakes, following our June episode about crocs. Croc and Snake Month for the year is drawing to a close at this point uh, in the near future, but there's still some time uh, to celebrate the world's best group of animals. Now, we already celebrated that last month, but if you want to continue... If you're listening to this in August, I guess. If you want to participate with supporting these conservation efforts, once again, get onto the Snake and Croc tier, and you have a little bit of time left to get in and help out these awesome animals. 
And we hope that everybody has had a great, we hope you had a great croc month and we hope you're having an even better snake month. If, if, if that's possible. Go out and appreciate a snake from afar. Yeah. Go wave at a snake. Well, don't wave at a snake. That's just, that's just showing off. It's <laughs> <That is> flaunting. <laughs> Stick your tongue out at a snake. Go wiggle your tongue in the direction of a snake. <laughs> now, I want, I want uh, there to now be reports of people on trails. and. Please send us pictures of you wiggling your tongue in the direction of a snake in a very friendly and welcoming manner. In an appropriate way. Wiggle your tongue out and then smile as though they... They smell great. Yes, yes. <laughs> You're, yeah, it's a, I've sensed you with my vomeral nasal organ, and I like what I'm sensing. Delightful. What a fragrance. <laughs> uh, somebody come up with a hashtag for that and then put it on Instagram and wherever else. There you go. Uh, snake wave. Hashtag snake wave. <laughs> go wave your tongue at a snake. You're going to get a lot of weird pictures. <sighs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.